Hi, something so special for you today. You and I are going to meet Daniel Mate, Gabor Mate's son and co-author of their instant bestseller, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness and Healing in a Toxic Culture. But about that, see the last question I asked Gabor in our two-part conversation, what's your biggest failure? And he tells me his greatest failure in life was himself as a parent. So I had to ask his son, Daniel, to talk about that, to give his perspective. And yes, he gives it and a whole lot more. This is an enlightening conversation about childhood trauma, narcissism, relationships, and getting stuck and unstuck in life. But just before you meet Daniel, and maybe get unstuck, something I need to tell you about. And well, thank you about her hair is curly her teeth are pearly she's got an edge but she's still pretty girly oh oh nothing rhymes with dahlia so that thank you Well, I recently posted something on social media, and it's by far the most viral thing I've ever had on social media. And in this video, I ask Gabor Mate, how could you have, let's say, people who are raised by the same parents in the same way, Mm -hmm. one becomes a narcissist and one doesn't? Because no two kids are raised in the same family. No two children have the same parents. Now, that's only part of his answer, but... This video is ridiculously popular. I I can't even see all of the views because sometimes people just take it and share it wherever and I don't know who's sharing it where and I can't keep track of that. But just on my own accounts, what I can see, at least 10 million views. And from those views that I can see, about 1 million likes, more than 10,000 comments. And that was just from one of the videos I posted. A couple others from our chat went viral too. So first, maybe you see people in your life who need that. Maybe that's why you share these videos and podcast episodes with your friends and family. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here and just taking the time to listen and to spend this time with you and me. And second, here's what's so interesting about the comments on these videos. It's almost like these comments can be cut and paste for anyone to share. Oh, I thought I was the only one. What? I thought I was the only one. I feel like the only one. And so as these videos and episodes circulate, more and more people start reaching out to me. Some people even ask, are you a motivational speaker? And Sure, I've done that. I I do that. But here on on this podcast, I'm not here to be a motivational speaker for you. I'm here to be your friend. Sometimes maybe the friend you aren't to yourself. Sometimes maybe the friend I'm not to myself because some of these things I say to you, I think they're really so that I could say them to me too. But I'm here to help you motivate you. You are your best motivational speaker. Think about it. 
how is it that we have so many fantastic motivational speakers and motivational podcasts and so, so many people listening to them, yet so few motivated people? Because ultimately, your motivation, it has to come from within. And motivation is built off of a sense of momentum. And now think about this. How can you have momentum without action, without movement? If a tire gets stuck in the mud, no matter how much you floor that gas pedal, it just keeps spinning its wheel. And when your mind is muddied with your traumas and ruminations, what happens? It gets stuck. Now, no matter how much gas someone puts in your car, you press that gas pedal, floor it, best car ever, you're still stuck. So it's often hard to connect with others, with life, with your own emotions when you're stuck. Stuck inside your childhood trauma, stuck inside your isolation, your disconnection. And as Gabor says, your trauma doesn't come from getting hurt. It comes from being alone with your hurt. And just before we meet Daniel, I've had a hard time thinking of what to say here. I've had some creative blocks. So... What's blocking my creativity? Well, I wanted to express my feelings to you on childhood trauma and feeling stuck. But it's hard to express my authentic feelings on this because I have spent my whole life covering them up, hiding them. So then when I need to express them intimately and authentically here to you, particularly on this topic, they're blocked. So I didn't realize that. And I'm listening to this song. It really connected with me. It just popped up in my feed one day and I listened to it and I just liked it. And this was a couple of days ago. And then I thought, well, I want to see what the video looks like for this. It's a song called Mean by Madeline the Person. It's the first time I ever heard of her and I'm just absolutely smitten already. And I watched the video and see her story in the song now. I can visualize this. And you know when you just cry and you don't know why? That's what happened. So... I watched it again and again, and you have to cry sometimes because that's a pure form of recognition, of recognition of yourself, being in touch with yourself, right? And so I start to understand. I saw in her song, in that video, her story, how I had been feeling. And then this podcast started flooding my mind quicker than I could verbalize it to you. And then I was able to authentically express all of this to you. If you hide your true feelings from yourself, you will never be able to understand how you feel. You will continue to remain stuck, stuck in that story that you once lived. Like, 
Look at your present. How does it reflect your past? How come when someone doesn't text you back, they're mad at you? But when you don't text someone, well, obviously, you know, it's just because you're busy. You're not mad at them. But that person who doesn't text you back, oh, they must be mad at you, right? No, not everyone is mad at you. When they don't get back to you just because you were alone with your hurt in your childhood doesn't make it true now. But I get it because that's the worldview you give yourself. So you continue to sell yourself on anything you find that will continually convince you that that one worldview you developed as a child is valid. And you need to validate it because as a child, no one validated it for you because you sat alone with your feelings. And it was valid, but you've grown That's not the world you live in now. These things that you think are wrong with you, you develop them as coping mechanisms when you were trying to survive as a kid. And those coping mechanisms have now become a part of your way of life. But they're stopping you from living your present life. You need to get unstuck. Pay attention to your insecurities. They are not there to take you down. They are there to raise you up, to help you heal. And you need to get unstuck. You need that authenticity, that authenticity that is what gave me that creativity. Because creativity comes from that place within. If you're not being authentic, it's just not going to be creative. It's just going to sound like it is so performative. And when you've been performing your whole life, it's very easy to get stuck in that performative place. And when you're performing, you're not being authentic. And so without that authenticity, you're never going to develop real attachment, connection, and you need attachment, connection, friends, family, even if that family isn't blood, you need that. It doesn't matter who's in your life anymore. It matters that you have people in your life. Connection. It's air. It's, it's science. It's a need. It's an actual need. And that is not from the Dahlia National Institute of Dahlia Research. That is from science. Now, Before I introduce you to Daniel, this is a conversation we had with an audience on Instagram Live. So sometimes the sound quality may not be of the highest quality, but what he has to say, well, that, my friend, is of the highest quality. And that's why I want to share it with you. Daniel, you co-wrote this with your dad, Gabor Mate. But I feel as though you're not quite done with your part of the story because I feel as though musical theater composer and a lyricist does have more to offer and maybe we'll hear your story in a different way. And Well, I mean, I hope I'm not done with my part of the story. I'm only 47. <laughs> I hope I have more to contribute in this life than just writing a, you know, getting a co-writing credit with my famous father. Well, it's very cool that you got to do it. And then there's this beautiful picture in the paper this morning that shows 
the two of you sitting on a couch rejoicing in this, yay, look at us being co-authors. And then you weren't credited as a co-author. It's fine. You know, I used to be my dad's editor, so this was a bit of a promotion. What was it like being your dad's editor? Well, back then it was, it was pretty, being my dad's editor was a lot simpler than being his co-author. You know, as the editor, I could just kind of make comments, make a few little changes. But here, this was a real collaboration. We had to learn how to work together. And he had to learn, we both had a learning curve. I mean, he could speak more faithfully to his, but from what I observed, he had to learn how to step aside a little bit, how to allow someone else to contribute to him. I mean, he had co-written Hold On To Your Kids with Gordon Newfeld, mm -hmm. but my dad was the, the co-writer in that sense. You know, it was Gordon's ideas. <clears throat> with this one, it was his ideas, his baby. He had been trying to write it for five years, and then along comes this young whippersnapper who he asked to do it, but still, all of a sudden, he's not flying the plane solo anymore and negotiating who gets to sit in what seat in the cockpit and how we're going to do this was a thing. And um, understandably, he wanted it to sound like him and feel like him. But I said to him, look, it's ultimately going to sound like some version of you, but it's going to be us. It's going to be, I mean, if you want me involved, it's because you want my voice to affect the I'm not here for the re I'm not here because I'm a scientist or a doctor or a trauma therapist. I'm not. What I am is a writer and someone who loves to communicate. So you have to make space for me to impact the voice of this book and not just the voice of the audiobook, which I also uh, narrated. So that was a learning curve for him. And the learning curve for me was learning to um, be patient and to be understanding with him and to be patient and compassionate to his struggle. I mean, I got to see him more insecure, I think, than I've ever seen. Like under the surface of the confidence and the expertness, there's a guy who really, really wanted to say something and share something with the world and wasn't sure if he could, wasn't sure if he had it in him, wasn't sure if people would be interested. And obviously time has shown that those fears were unfounded, but those were his, his insecurities that I don't know that I'd ever really seen before. And as a creative artist, I can relate to those things. So that was interpersonally, and emotionally, that was the work of writing it. And then just the work of writing itself was a lot of fun. We love each other's way with words. We love collaborating. We would bounce chapters back and forth together until we both loved what was on the page. We had a lot of fun, a lot of fun, a lot of laughter, a lot of head scratching and a lot of breakthroughs and figuring out together how to tell this story, really. It's a big, big, big arc of this book, right? So we had to cut it down in half because the first draft was twice as long if you can believe it it's 500 pages and it used to be twice as long so it was a very very rich worthwhile process that i'll treasure for the rest of my life well i know there was a point where your dad just wanted to give the money back to the publishers oh he did this is before i came along yeah he was done and he had a different deal long yeah. were you the game changer daniel you know when he tells the story i don't think he gives me quite enough credit for changing the game I wasn't the game changer, but I was the game elevator because he had the idea that got him back in the ring. He, on his own, you know, the, the title of the book was the, uh, Toxic Culture, How Capitalism Makes Us Sick. And you can just feel the heaviness of that title. You know, it's just not that, not that um, uplifting or, or inspiring. And that's the book that he sent the advance money back. And then he took a vacation with my mom and he was sitting in San Francisco and the myth of normal occurred to him, which was the title of a, an interview he'd done before or a talk he'd done, but he realized that's what he wanted to say. 
But then he had to write the book proposal and he started working on it. And that summer, he showed it to my mom and she was quite critical of it. She thought it was too heavy, too dense, too confusing, too heady or whatever, too cerebral. So he sent it to me and that's when I said, Dad, I can help you with this, but I'm gonna need to come out from behind the curtain. I'm gonna need to be accredited co-author because you need more help than just an editor can give. And he said, I was hoping you'd say that. Aww. And not to take away from his majority stake in this book. I mean, it's his work, it's his ideas, it's his research, it's his interviews, it's his passions. You know, this is not my field. But from the moment I sat down with that book proposal, I turned it upside down. I really sent him back a draft that was reworked, you know, because as a storyteller, as a musical theater writer, I have a sense of structure. So I do give myself a fair amount of credit for making the book proposal as good as it was and showing him how good it could be really. And then he stepped up, right? And just inviting him to think bigger and, and, and more boldly than he had been and to be clearer and, and all of that. And yeah, and then I did have to do a fair amount of like cheerleading as we went on because he would get very stressed and very overwhelmed. He was very identified with it at times. His blood pressure went up for the first time ever. He's never had high blood pressure, but his, he was actually so stressed. And I had to, you know, keep an even keel, which in the face of my father's stress is not easy for my nervous system. Mm -hmm. Because this is the guy whose nervous system conditioned mine. And I grew up with him as a very stressed, tense, rageaholic, not a very pleasant guy to be around a lot of the time, very unpredictable. And so my, my little nervous system is still, still has some programming of like being on alert, like how's dad doing? Yeah. And then sometimes overreacting, like I'm a little kid again, like, you know, setting my boundaries really loudly. And so we, we had our conflicts, we had our clashes. Part of what I was getting paid for in terms of this book contract was to make sure that it happened. And that meant putting up with and, and actually coming to sort of be fine with whatever my dad threw at me, because this is part of collaboration. It's funny, in musical theater, I'm usually the difficult personality when I work with other people. Like I'm used to other people being really patient and gentle with me because I'm the one with the stresses and the neuroses. In this case, I had to sort of play the role of, it's, it's good, dad, it's all good. It's good, we've got this. To see or to hear when you're explaining this, how the myth of normal is much more a testament to the journey of healing than you would think. Because what initially brought this conversation between you and me together is the last question that I asked your father. Hmm. And the last question I asked your father, he was very generous with his time. And I wanted to make sure that no matter how long it went, I asked this question because far too often in life, we talk about our successes. And so I wanted to know what was his biggest failure because mountains don't rise without earthquakes. And he shares his biggest failure. The biggest failure was myself as a parent. I just wasn't nearly present enough for my kids' childhood. As a empathic and empathetic and, and, and sort of emotionally stable human being. Mm -hmm. And that's had an impact. And he says that his biggest failure was as a father. Well, how interesting is this that one, the two of you were able to come together and do this book. And two, when he describes those experiences of being your father and how he would see he treated you through his eyes, since the 
truth is so much this lived experience and it exists in you and it's not a cerebral factual thing. I want to know what's your truth. You've seen what your father has written and said about being a dad. Yep. What do you see? What's your experience? Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking. Uh, I do get to hear whenever I tune into my dad's interviews, which I sometimes do, I get to hear him talking about his fathering and his shortcomings. Uh, as a father, you know, and it's tricky when someone asks your dad, what's your biggest failure in life? It's a fine line between my biggest failure is my kids and my biggest failure is my parenting. <laughs> you know, when, as the kid, when you're listening, it's like when you have a guilty parent, it's easy to feel like you're your parent's mistake. This is why guilt is so useless, at least the kind of chronic, there's remorse, there's genuine remorse if it's tied to accountability and wanting to do better. And, and to be accountable to the people that you've fallen short with. But so what was it like? Yeah, I mean, he gets some of it when he describes it, I think. But I'd say that for me, what I've had to discover is that you're exactly right. It's not about the, the, the cerebral telling of the story. It's not about the facts or the events. As we say, trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you, which starts with your experience of it. And I've known for a long time the facts of my childhood. My dad has been telling me about the facts of my early childhood since I was 10. Since I was 11, when I would come home from school with social problems, you know, in the schoolyard, he would explain it to me via the sort of early stresses I had and probably how that affected my brain development or whatever, like, which is so unhelpful because it's not relatable. It's not someone being like, hey, I, you know, there's no guidance in it. There's just like, okay, you're, you're this way, you're stuck. At least you understand it. But also it got in the way of me accessing my own version of it, like my own anger about it. Didn't get a chance to like authentically come out because dad got me on his side. I'm like, oh, my dad's so good. He, he, he tells me about what he did. So there's, there was that kind of cycle, being in a family with such psychological sophistication and such intelligence, um, and good intentions, but it was tricky for me because I was a very intelligent kid. And one of my core trauma, I mean, look, there is the, I had big T and small T traumas. He talks about the big T ones. He hit me once when I wouldn't sing happy birthday to him at a family gathering. That was a shitty thing to do. It was the one time he ever hit me, I was three. But when he tells the story, he says, you know, Daniel was just being a three-year-old. When I hear it, I'm like, well, what? I was being a three-year-old, but something must have happened that day. Why was I mad at him? There was other things. It's not just these incidents. There's a whole environment. There's the day-to-day -day life. What was I acting out, you know? And that's the thing that I've had to reconnect with because the big ticket events I know about. I know about his rages. I know about his, the relationship with my mom. But for me, the, the, the actual experience of it was uh, chaos and unpredictability insecurity, really. You talk about people being psychologically insecure. The literal meaning of insecure is not safe. Yeah. And as a child, you need to be born into a world where the rules of engagement are clear. You know, as a kid, you don't know what anything is. In my childhood, as I put it in the book, the floor was not the floor. I would have nightmares where the floor would keep opening up underneath me. There was no solid ground. The emotional climate could change from one minute to the next, depending on whatever mood swings either one of my parents or both of them would have at any moment. Their relationship was totally chaotic. And I would say that they were self-absorbed. I'm not going to use the 
the word narcissism, which is thrown around a lot these days, and I think might be losing some of its power and meaning, you know, but they were certainly self-absorbed and, and young, and they were traumatized too, right? They were, they were acting out their own patterns. So they had a hard time tuning into what I needed. And then there was the fact that I was a very intelligent child, very bright, very intense, which put demands on them for their attention. And they would have liked me to have been easier, I think. They planned to raise the perfect child. That they, they would half joke about that before I was born. So only a half joke. And I came out and I did not go according to plan. Both physically and emotionally, I presented certain challenges. They had some difficulties adjusting to that. And so then I needed to adjust to them. I had to catch up with them intellectually. Mm -hmm. My dad has said he's always had a hard time relating to babies. He was waiting for all for his kids to gain language so that he could you know, have conversations with them. But, you know, as a baby, you need someone to be able to be with you when you're pre-verbal. So I got verbal very quickly and very quick, like a preemptive strike. Like my brain is like got conscripted into a, an army very, very early to protect me, to keep me on alert. My ear got excellent. This is probably how I became a piano player, like a musician, like I've got perfect pitch and I don't know if I was born with it or if I developed it in my first few years by listening, I would stay up late at night after I'd gone to bed, listening for the faintest hint of my parents' voices in the kitchen. Are they talking about me? Like honing my tools, my toolkit. Now these are all strengths, they're kind of superpowers of mine, but they're born of a wound and they're used for survival. So then my talents start to be suspect to me. I'm like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really even feel like mine. <laughs> it's like, it's part of a whole survival package and that's stressful. And so the stress of living in that environment and the, and the frustration then of having parents who were so good with language and who, who could some, and then later in life, I think having parents who were doing psychological and spiritual work, but would sometimes use it in a, and I don't want to use the word gaslighting because it's an other, another overused word. And it implies that someone's deliberately trying to make you think you're crazy. And that was not the case. But in terms of a, an environment that made me question my own sanity, yeah, it happened all the time. Because words, language could be flipped around and used and, you know, quoting Eckhart Tolle, quoting spiritual masters, quoting true things as a way of criticizing me or something, mm -hmm. or as a way of ducking my complaint. Like I'm, you know, being account, like not being accountable by means of, and you, you know, it's spiritual bypass, interpersonal spiritual bypass. You see it all the time in the spiritual community, people being nasty to each other and saying the nicest, kindest, most enlightened things. Well, I think I grew up in an environment where that happened and I saw them doing it to each other. So that was a, another imprint was not having a, a sense of what a stable, calm, coherent relationship looked like where you can prioritize, okay, okay, we're having our conflict, but right now we're having dinner with the kids. Mm -hmm. They didn't have that ability to prioritize. So yeah, it's that sense of psycho lack of psychological and even ontological existential safety. Like the world didn't hold together, which created a template, I think, for mental illness or whatever, or a certain amount of psychological instability in my adulthood, which has definitely been my main thing. I don't get chronically ill physically, you know, I'm not overly addicted to anything, you know, uh, that's not my main thing. My main thing has been a kind of bipolarity. Well, 
it perfectly fits the situation I was in. Constantly trying to keep up with the swings and the pendulums and the, you know, so I'm always seasick. I'm always, you know, trying to unrock the boat. I can relate to a lot of what you've said. And there were a couple of key things I want to touch on when you were talking about these superpowers you had. And this was the very conversation I had with your dad about my superpowers that I developed through my traumas. And there's a real problem with that because they're like these gifts you know I'm able to put on a show I, I could put on a show no matter what I've been through and I used to be really really proud of, of that type of resilience and that type of mask that I could wear like a moment after the worst event you could possibly imagine and it has reached the point where I wish that I didn't have that superpower I wish that I was actually able to express to people when I'm sad and say, I'm really sad right now, or I'm really hurt right now. And so as great as these superpowers are and people celebrate you for them, you don't feel like they're necessarily celebrating you because they don't see you. Is that something you feel? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's to call it a superpower is perfect. Think of any superhero story, any superhero, their superpower gets them through life, gains them admiration and gratitude, gives them a sense of purpose and identity, but it always comes from an original wound. Mm-hmm. You fall into a vat of toxic nuclear waste. You um, get bit by a radioactive spider or whatever happened to Spider-Man, you know? Or in the case of my lookalike, Tony Stark, you get a traumatic heart injury I see it now. <laughs> your heart, you know, you're traumatized in your relationship with your militaristic father and, and you have to implant this super powered but very fragile heart that, and then you have all these powers and you're brilliant and all that. So I can relate to that guy. See, we're born with genuine gifts. So your ability to perform didn't come out of nowhere. It was built on top of, like I said, I, I got conscripted. It's like your gifts got recruited by your survival mechanisms. Like, okay, we have to survive with something. We might as well use the part of us that we were, like our our God-given gifts, right? Now, they were, just to put in the God language for a second, you know, this is just a metaphor. I don't really necessarily speak this way, but translate it to whatever your views, your spiritual world is. God didn't give us those gifts to survive and protect ourselves. God gave us those gifts to express them and give to the world and, and, and be fulfilled, you didn't give them to be a drain, right? But when we have to survive as kids, fuck it, you gotta grab whatever's there. You gotta, you gotta take the nearest thing. So I took my intelligence and my cleverness and my, my ear and all this stuff, and I recruited it. I commend, you know, it, I was like, okay, you're up. And you took your love of people or your, your, your bigness, like your, your presence, right? Which is the essence of performance. It gets recruited into a survival, a fear-based survival function. And then it's forever associated with it. So then it's hard to gain access to the original gift without it being part of the survival thing. And it's compulsive Mm -hmm. because we have to develop these as compulsive habits. Otherwise, we might not survive. So they have to become parts of our personality rather than parts of our essence. So now we do them compulsively. We can't imagine ourselves without it. We do it even when it's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. 
We do it when, and we, you know, and they land with a thud sometimes, but then we're like, okay, God, I messed that one up. Let me do it. Let me try it again. Okay, I got it right that time. People liked it. But now it's addictive. And as Vincent Felitti says, we quote him in the book, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. And these strong suits of ours, I wouldn't call them strengths, they're strong suits. They're our winning personalities. They almost work. They get us a hit of relief. Okay, I got through that one. That was great. Now I need the next hit. But it's compulsive. And at a certain point, as an adult, you start to tire of that. Because yeah. it's, it's blocking something else. When I always have to be the smartest, cleverest, quickest guy in the room, I'm missing the chance to just sit and connect with people. I'm coming from a place where I don't believe they just want to be with me. I have to be interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, if a woman has to be sexy or attractive or a great hostess or whatever, she's miss she's she's looking at a world that she believes won't value her just for just waking up in the morning and just being her. And that is a hard. That's a stressful belief to have about yourself that you're then always compensating for. And then the compensations can get you into trouble, just like in every Marvel Avengers movie, the Avengers save the world, but they also blow something up and kill a bunch of civilians or get into a whole bunch of trouble, you know? It's like we can't really, these superpowers are so super that we can't really control them. So healing is about bringing ourselves back down to earth, I think, and discovering what was that original gift? And can I unpack the suit of armor that I've put on and find that original gift? And I don't have to stop being clever. I mean, I'm never gonna, it, I like my personality. But can I have more flexibility with it? Can I have more choice with it? Can I realize, oh yeah, that's just, that's my, that's my thing and have a sense of humor about it. And then I don't have to do it. And then there's some freedom. At least you get to have a lookalike in Tony Stark. I have no idea. I can't figure out one person that I get to have a lookalike with. That's okay. I'll figure that out for another Cindy Lauper. Pardon? Cindy Lauper. Not really, not really necessarily facially, but your vibe, certainly with the hair, like, I would cast you as Cindy Lauper in an, in an 80s movie. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just breathing this in. Let me just take this in and just remember this moment and feel this moment because you just said two of my favorite words. You know, this is a very tough time in the world. I've never seen people in the state that they're in right now. I've never had this many people come forward asking for help. This many people just seeing in their isolation and disconnection. With your dad, there was a moment where I felt bad for him. We were having a conversation, and I think this was the only moment actually where Dare I say, I disagreed with something that Gabor Mate said. Good. Fuck yeah. Disagreed a couple of times. My favorite moment in the Joe Rogan interview was when Jogan, Joe Rogan was just not buying his thing about there's no such thing as failure. Rogan's like, yes, there is. If you're an, if you're an elite athlete and like if you're no, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal beats you, you better be pissed off about it, which isn't to say I'm a deep down failure. But anyway, the point is I watched someone kind of go toe-to-toe -to -toe with my dad on something and push back on him, which is great. Mm -hmm. Because he's a human being, and you're, so are you. And So tell me about what you, what, what you disagreed about. Well, there are a couple things, but this is the one that made me feel sad, but I didn't outwardly disagree with him because I was too busy feeling sad for him in this moment. Mm. I asked him about joy. What brings you joy? 
Joy has always been a tough question for me because I've not experienced it that much. Um, and the real question for me is not what brings me joy, but because um, I don't think anything brings you joy. I think joy is an internal quality mm-hmm. that we can actually experience. So the question is more is what blocks joy? That What blocks the joy that's already there? Did he say he's never felt joy? Well, in your dad's typical fashion, he likes turning a question around on you and answer you. You take somebody's question. Yeah. You gently correct it. And that's how you give your answer in the correction of the question. Am I correcting? I'm simply just reframing it. <laughs> that's your dad, right? Yeah, that's now imagine growing up with that. Oh, every Imagine growing up with it. It's fine in an interview or as a professional persona. But just for a second, imagine what it's yeah. like growing up with oh, that. Oh, oh, I have many seconds. I had like 90 minutes of it. So he's like what brings you joy? I'd rather ask the question, what blocks joy? But he says, I haven't experienced much of it. And when he said this thing about what blocks joy, no, I disagree with that. Other people can bring you joy. Joy is probably the purest thing there is in this world. And it is this fleeting moment and this is why people underestimate it but i see so much meaning in it there's this fleeting moment with joy where you can be like there was this one day i was in a rush i was having a bad day i'm behind my building there's a sprinkler there's this huge bulldog like i'm horrible at sound effects and he was running through this sprinkler back and forth i was in the worst mood so busy i stopped I just stopped and watched that dog. Every other emotion in me disappeared. The only thing I felt in that moment was the joy of the And so I don't see as, you know, what's blocking joy. Well, what's blocking joy is a valid question, but it's not what you asked. It's a dodge. (laughs) And I've heard him do this before. And... I was on stage with him once when someone asked him this, and he said, well, I've not felt much. And I said, Dad, with all due respect, I'm calling you on this. I've seen you be joyful. The thing is, he just doesn't have a framework for it. He devalues it. Yeah. He desecrates it, actually. He doesn't recognize the sacredness of it, so he doesn't notice it when it happens, and then he dismisses it, and he gets back. He identifies, you know, in the book, one of my favorite things about writing this book is I got to put words in my dad's mouth. I got to, like kind of describe him through his words, right? And I talked about his, you know, miraculous Eeyore mode where, you know, Eeyore the donkey from Winnie the Pooh. No matter what happens, if something good happens, it's just a sign that things are going to turn bad tomorrow, you know? And the funny thing about that character is you can see it's an attitude. It's just an attitude. It's not that he doesn't have good things happen to him. And it's not that he couldn't experience joy. He's actually attached to his little misery. He likes it. Mm, Yeah. And, and I think with my dad, it's a, it's a habit of mind in a sense where, and then he gets to tell the sad story about how he was a kid in Hungary and got given away by a, a, a stranger on the street and very, very true and powerful and consequential event in his life. But I've seen him be joyful when people tell jokes, when I do voices, when my mom is making him laugh when he was playing with our dog, Rosie, before she passed away for, you know, she was in their lives for like 16 years. She gave him so much joy. Um, When he listens to 
a piece of music that he loves truly and really enjoys it. Uh, when he's on his bicycle and, and riding, he's a crazy bike rider. Like he's got incredible stamina, right? Uh, especially at age 78, he's in better shape than I am. So he just doesn't recognize these things as joy. He doesn't subscribe to joy, which is different than he doesn't experience joy. Mm -hmm. But it limits his ability to welcome it into his life and to tolerate it. I don't think he's comfortable with it. And that was another aspect of my childhood, right? But it's not true. It's just not true. And so, yeah, that makes me sad too, because that's blocking an opportunity to have a communion in a conversation about joy. Like if you ask me about joy, what are you doing? You're inviting me to share about joy with you and to like get in touch with joy, which can happen in any moment. And I simply do not believe that my dad is incapable of that, but I think there's a kind of attitudinal reluctance to do it for whatever reason. Maybe there's pain around that, you know, losing that, doesn't believe that it'll last, might just be an identity thing. I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm not going to psychoanalyze it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and it's that kind of stubborn insistence on limitations that, and then launder and, and then sort of explaining it through, well, I was traumatized. Mm. Trauma limits you. Yes. But you don't have to insist on those limitations all the time. And people can get kind of ideological about their limitations. We get attached to our stuckness. We kind of like it. And we have to be honest about that. It leads me to your hello again project. And I'm sorry. And by the way, I feel a little self-conscious saying all that. Like I'm, I'm worried that like, there's a part of me, like the little, I just did something bad. Little boy in me is like, like we were talking about Papa. I'm, yeah, I'm talking shit about my dad and all of his fans are out there listening. And I'm like, I'm ripping, like I'm showing that the emperor has no clothes. That's not what I mean to do really. I love and respect the hell out of the guy and I'm so grateful to have worked with him and we agree on so many things and we disagree on some things and speaking of what you're about to ask me about, that's a productive part of our collaboration. But I do appreciate you saying that to me because I don't think he gets everything right, quite frankly. Well, I, I get this. It's, it's like the relationship with my dad and it's, it is a tough situation because I'm in a place where I feel as though I can sort of take the people. I'll talk about things that people might not feel comfortable talking about and that yeah. could formalize that idea that we can have this conversation. But that means that there are some maybe, if you wanna look at it as casualties that fall into my tendency to do that. You know, I'll share a story about my father growing up. I just did a podcast uh, about carcinophobia and the fear of cancer and what my father's fear of cancer did to me as a little girl. It's a really horrible thing, but you know what? As a little girl, and I'm going to say this, I wished that my dad had cancer because then they could have diagnosed it then he could have been treated. And you shouldn't say this. And I felt really bad, but I, I had to say it. And I, I do have those sorts of feelings of guilt. I feel like I do my best to say things yeah. with love and compassion behind it, but I guess. Yeah, well, so two things about that. Number one, I have my dad's open permission and license to say anything I want. You know, quite, it's just, that's mm -hmm. because we're, we have this collaboration, we have an understanding that we're each just gonna let it rip and we're gonna come back together and work together and that's part of what we're modeling, I guess. And if, if I say something that, you know, is 
crosses the line, he'll let me know. It's different with my mother. I'm a little more careful in terms of what I say about my mom because my mom and I are still working out the, the lines of that. She can get stung, not even by my words, but by my tone. If I, if I sort of have an aggressive, um, edgy, you can tell I've got like a kind of a sharp sense of humor. And that can sometimes sting her. And I really don't want to do that. There's no, I don't have to do that. This is not my therapy. I am not mm-hmm. healing by divulging my family's secrets. I'm trying to, I'm trying to share something with people. Obviously I enjoy it. Like, but, <laughs> but, but it's not, I can't say, well, mom, I'm just being authentic. No, the authentic, I mean, I'm also her son. And, you know, so authenticity means keeping that in mind too. So it's, it's contextual. And in, in terms of you wishing your dad had cancer, I totally understand that. I wished my parents got divorced sometimes. I wish there'd be some big catastrophe because then we could like deal with that instead of just the chronic. Yeah. But that reminds me of, it's kind of the flip side of something my dad once said to me. He visited me in New York and um, you know, both my brother and I were struggling at the time with like depressions. And we went to, I think the Met Museum of Art or maybe it was the Guggenheim, I forget. But I remember very clearly, we're standing on one of the balconies looking down, and I'm just telling him what's going on with me. And he says, geez, Daniel, oh, sometimes I just wish you'd develop a good heroin addiction, you know? Like, why can't you just get addicted, like, just like a, 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 a clear, discreet, like, single thing that you could deal with, you know, to see you suffering in this kind of generalized way? I was like, I get it. And I thought it was pretty hilarious that he said that. To do this sort of therapy, Um, out loud where you have this permission to do it. Uh, I have this permission to do it. I have a platform to do it. A lot of people are very stuck. You and your dad with with Hello Again though, that's offering a platform of sorts to do this in a a different way. Absolutely. Tell us about it. We were approached by someone in Vancouver who was uh, working at Hollyhock, the the retreat center up on Cortez Island, who also do programs in the city. I think I had made a cameo appearance at a retreat he led up at the Omega Institute in upstate New York. And I had brought my guitar and I played a couple of songs that I'd written that sort of touched on some of the themes of authenticity and growth and whatever. And we'd interacted a bit. People had asked us about our dynamics. So we, and this person had witnessed it and thought that the dynamic was cool. Like it wasn't all lovey-dovey. There was some kind of spice to it, you know? And She's like, there's something in this. So she approached us in Vancouver and said, but what would you guys talk about? And I think I said, well, what if we did a workshop about adult parent-child relationships? It's the most prevalent, common, normal thing in the world that no one talks about. If you go into any bookstore, how many shelves are you going to see about parenting? Books upon books upon books, from conception to college drop-off. And these days, how to deal with your... 30-year-old kids who won't move out of your basement, (laughs) right? And then there's shelves about how to say goodbye to your dying parents or to grieve them when they're dead. And there's, of course, books about how to heal from your narcissistic parents and all that, right? Everyone's a child of a narcissist, which I believe it. We all are in some ways, especially in this world. But there's all of that. But what about just here's the four, five, six decades you get to spend as both adults. Both of you are grown-ups now. And it's, there's no other relationship in the world like it, not even close. First of all, you didn't, I didn't enter this relationship by choice. Mm-hmm. I never said, hey, pleased to meet you. Why don't I be your son? If you want to believe that cosmically my soul said that, that's fine. But I 
this body, this personality never consented. I never signed up for this. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was not chosen. Whereas they made some kind of choice in the matter. Number one. Number two, when we met, we couldn't have been more different. They were fully grown adults who understood the world, spoke a language, at least one, had done some things, had eaten some meals at restaurants, had had some sex, had seen some movies, and knew some things. No, then you make me think of my parents having, no, no. I'm looking at the result of your parents having. <laughs> okay, now I'm looking at the Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Parents. Sorry, you, sorry, you, you didn't you didn't send me the list okay. of off limit off limit topics before we did this, and now I know. Um, but what I'm saying is, you've had they've had a full life. They're people, and I'm just this little ball of energy that just plopped into the world. And this is how our relationship started. That was our first date. And now, 20 years later, or 30 years later, or 40 years later, or 60 years later, we're supposed to like get along in the world together now that we're both grown-ups and have something like an equal partnership. But is equality even the appropriate thing? Aren't you supposed to honor your father and mother forever? Does that put them slightly above you? So all these questions, there's no template for how it's supposed to be. It's because we all understand the struggle to become your own person while trying to stay in a relationship with the person who conditioned you to be the way you are. And there may be some, but there, you know, there's a role reversal in terms of physically, you're still a health, I mean, if things go the way nature intends it, you're still an adult who's, who's living and growing and in your strength, and your parents are declining, and they're getting less and less solid, and their personalities are getting, and that's appropriate. That's what death and dying is. Mm -hmm. And we live in a death-phobic culture, but that's what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to shepherd our parents, if we can, if, if we can safely be in relationship with them. Either us or the community is supposed to be there and let them dissolve really right relationships though that we used to have in those days of yore where you would have you know that point where you would start shepherding your parents i mean not only the parental child relationships have been disintegrating but it, it's also sibling relationships oh sure i asked your dad a question because i've wondered this question my whole life his response People are still talking about it right now. This video where I said to him, you know, when you have siblings, why is it they could be raised by the same parents and turn out differently? And he said, no, no two children have the same parents. No two children have the same parents. Yeah. But another word in that conversation that really got to people was the word narcissism. And you even said this, this is an overused word right now. It's losing its power. But at the same time, everybody has a narcissist brother or narcissist sister or narcissist mother. I mean, look, we're living in a society that look at the platform we're on. Look at the piece of technology you and I are using to do this miraculous thing that we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in Brooklyn. You're where? In Toronto? Yes. Okay. Amazing. And people all over the world are watching and, you know, we got heart emojis going up and it's incredible. Even 10 years ago, it would have been unthinkable. Okay. But what does this, what's the Faustian bargain? <laughs> like, what does the devil get in return? What does this app create? We're all narcissists on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And corporations make money from our narcissism, which is to say, what is narcissism really? It's an, a void at the center of my sense of myself 
I am only who I am through other people's eyes. So I'm obsessed with how other people see me, right? So I'm constantly projecting something outward of the way I want to be seen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, which means that that takes precedence over things like moral principle or integrity or consistency, or even believing my own words. Like I can convince myself of anything in order to get the result I want, whether it's in the sexual arena or it's in the, the, the political arena. You saw this with Obama too. Politicians, many of them are people who have this kind of contortion ability to like, to like contort who they are. They're like rubber, rubbernecking, they're rubber people which cool on a certain level that maybe that's a superpower you're flexible you're whatever but i think it comes from a wound as well of kind of not really knowing who you are and wanting and more more focused on the effect you're having than on who you're being and whether it's truly authentic and this is why people start distrusting politicians even the most likable ones you see it in canada with justin trudeau terminally charming fellow but some people and more and more people kind of see through it there's just something a little extra about it but celebrities, you know, Kanye West spouting off, getting a rise out of people uh, with his ridiculous anti-Semitism, you know, all these controversies, it fuels narcissism. So we're living in an environment that like rewards and incentivizes narcissism to a large extent. So that's the water we're swimming in. That's just part of the toxic normal. We just have to admit that, right? Then in terms of everyone has a narcissist in their family, well, more and more families are emotional deserts. More and more families were very stressed when kids were small, you know, and kids adapt. Narcissism is just a replacement. Nature abhors a vacuum and narcissism flows into a society where, where collective meaning and purpose and dedication to other people is discouraged and kind of starved out. When your father and I were having this conversation about his book, Hold On To Your Kids, and we were talking about how that attachment to parents had shifted to peers and that's where kids were looking for their sure. well and so but also here's the other thing about narcissism it's a normal healthy stage of development right every, every child is a narcissist at for age time. two or three or four or five they have to be they should be but then the problem is if you're shifting to your peers you're no longer attached to your parents and your peers are all on social media well, suddenly everybody has this need because your self-esteem is intrinsically linked to the like button and the this and the that. And it's, it just becomes so much. That you can curate the image of yourself you want to put out there. And so your sense of yourself can shift with the winds of what other people want to see. It's, it's, and their brains are still developing. I mean, it's bad enough for us. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. I can't imagine growing up. If I had grown up now, I don't know if I would have made it through childhood. It would have been so intense. You know, at least in my childhood, I had adults that I could, you know, I, I, the social world wasn't all consuming. And that, that's... And, and these days it is. That's the sad reality of what it feels like right now. There's a lot of people who are choosing not to have children. And that's a, a big reason why I hear that. I don't... It has to do with their own development, growing up, how those things happened. But, you know, you also look at the family unit. It used to be tighter. You talk about hello again for, you know, parents and their adult children to come together. 
what is there also for adult children to come together? I've seen so many rifts in families where siblings who grew up best friends have nothing to do with each other anymore. Well, yeah, look, sibling rivalry is the, you know, one of the first stories in the Bible is a sibling rivalry that ends in fratricide. You know, Cain kills Abel. So that's old as time. It's archetypical. As my dad said, no two kids have the same parents, which means that now as adults, we're trying to get along and maybe take care of our parents or deal with our parents when we're visiting them. But the way my, the way my and I'm just going to speak generically, I have a brother and a sister. I'm not talking about them specifically. Mm -hmm. just an example. The way my sister thinks of my parents is different than the way I think of my parents or the way my brother thinks of my parents. So when I react to my parents in a certain way, my siblings might look at me and be like, what are you doing? That's completely inappropriate. And then I'm like, you don't have, you have no idea who my, what my parents are like. Yeah. Because they don't have the same parents. Um, and what we're trying to do with hello again, look, my dad and I are not perfect models of anything except maybe willingness. Just a willingness to step into the arena and engage with this and ask these questions rather than just try and survive it and get through it and cope. Mm -hmm. my, dad, my dad and I, one of the things we have in common is, you know, we don't like to leave unwell enough alone. <laughs> if, something's, if something could be better, or if something's obscured, why not make it clear? Why not try and get at the root of it, you know, mm -hmm. rather than keep suffering the same rerun over and over again? So we're kind of mapping out this territory for people. We're like going first and saying, hey, these are the spaces of this, these are the challenges. But of course, there's, it's different to have a mother-daughter relationship than a father-son relationship. It's different to grow up in one culture than to grow up in another. It's different to be the gay son of a homophobic father than it is to be the straight son of, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's all kinds of shades and differences. So we can't map out everything for everybody, but we're trying to find the universals. And the more we work with people, and we're planning to do a podcast on this sometime next year as we write the next book, which we haven't even started, but that's next up. Um, you know, and it doesn't have to look like, oh, we're going to be best friends. Some people choose to be, keep their parents at a distance or keep their adult children at a distance, but it doesn't have to be a cold distance necessarily. It doesn't have to be a bitter or resentful distance. There can be some understanding. You can close up those wounds. And this is the key thing. Lots of people come to our workshops who don't come with a parent or an adult child because either that person is dead or mired in addiction or mental illness mm -hmm. or demented or just not willing or they're not at that point yet. They come to work on the relationship with, to work on their own internal relationship with the external relationship, which is, it turns out, a big part of the relationship. About 80% of your relationship with your father is not taking place between you and your father. It's taking place inside of you. Yeah. Well, and if you can make movies in your mind, like I'm really good at doing, it's almost 100% of that. And those movies become reality really, really quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you cast your real father in the movie in your mind, and then you wonder why he doesn't say the lines you're supposed to say. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I did a mental chiropractic walk. So I... I do this thing called Walk With Daniel. Yes. I call myself the world's only mental chiropractor. Walkwithdaniel.com for anyone who's interested. I can talk about it if you want. But I was doing a walk with somebody. I was actually driving. I was driving from Detroit to Chicago, and she was walking 
where she was and somewhere else in the country. The reason for hiring me for this hour was she wanted tips and strategies and tactics for getting her daughters to attend Hello Again with her. <laughs> now, I could have given her what she was looking for, what she thought she wanted, and increased my bottom line, right? More, <laughs> more clients, right? More attendance. But I was like, I'm not going to do that because there's something weird here. So the question I put to her is, why do your daughters have to come? Why is it so important that your daughters come? And she hadn't asked herself that question. She just assumed, oh, I'm doing this for the best of motives. I want to help them. But it turned out that she had this script in her mind. And this is what I do with mental chiropractic. I show people how their minds are working. Mm -hmm. If they have an intention to get unstuck, then they have to be willing to look kind of honestly at the, at the funny, nasty stuff, you know? And she looked and she said, I, I just imagine it going like, I'm going to tell them that I'm inviting them to this workshop and it's in New York and I'm going to pay for it. And they're going to be so um, grateful that mama is like, this is literally how she said it. It sounds like mama Rose from the musical gypsy. Who's like an overbearing domineering mother who can't let go of her kid. Mama, mama sourced this for us, you know, and, and that must mean she cares about us so much. And I said, you live in California, right? Uh, she said, yeah. I said, how far away from Hollywood do you live? She said about an hour. I said, Oh, you could probably get there in time to take a lunch with the producer to try and sell that script. That's a really good, that's a really lovely scene. It's very uplifting. That's what I said. I said, but underneath that lovely scene, you've got something else going on. And it turns out she was resenting the hell out of her daughters. Mm -hmm. She was just and trying to manipulate them into healing with her so that she could have an easier time of it. And by the end of the, our walk, I said, well, what do you think now? What do you see? What is there for you to do? She said, my, what there is for me to do is book my own ticket to New York and buy my own ticket to the workshop. I said, great. And what are you going to tell your daughters? She said, I don't think I'm going to tell them anything. I said, ding, ding, ding. Wow. You're, you're in no state right now. There's no, it's, the context isn't right. You'd have an ulterior motive. Hmm. And you'd get more of what you always get, which would then confirm your story, which has you resent them, which would make you strategize more. And, you know. I still want to make sure I ask you this. A question from one of the viewers. I've got it right here in front of me, but because you brought up Walk with Daniel, I, I get, I can understand what you talk about when you're going for a walk and you're able to connect with whatever it is that's around you because I hate running. I hate not running even more. I hate winter. I hate being on a treadmill indoors even more because I will bundle myself up to the point where the clothes I am wearing on my body weigh more than I do. And I will go for that run in the worst weather. I'll complain about it. Don't worry about it. I will go for the run in the worst weather there is. It's my meditation. It's where I can process scripts or books or my show or anything. I'm able to put everything together in my mind. And it is because I'm outside. I could not do those same things indoors. So with me having said that just now and knowing what, obviously, what Walk with Daniel is, how did that start? Well, it started with the concept of mental chiropractic. And then the question was, where do I, what's the best way to deliver that? Right. And it turned out a friend of mine, I was walking with a friend and I was helping him sort through something. We happened to be walking. This is in Victoria, British Columbia. He said, you're really good at walking with people. 
And I knew what he meant because I have my best conversations when I'm walking. I have my best thoughts. Things get simplified. Things get crystallized. I enjoy it. I'm using both hemispheres of my brain. It's the you know it's hard to be locked in a trauma response when you're when you're walking, right? And trauma responses shut you down. But the mental chiropractic thing came to me when I was so at a certain point I was married, very briefly, to someone who was apprenticing with my father in the psychedelic integration space. So you can hear in that whole story that there was some boundary confusions, which resulted in the marriage not lasting very long. There's a lot of things I didn't see about that situation. Anyway, this person was apprenticing with my father and I kind of went along for the ride. This is at a time in my life where I wasn't feeling very confident about my musical theater writing. I didn't quite know who I was and I was defaulting to, well, okay, I'm a dad's son. Let me, you know, I'm married to this person now. So we were in Peru co-leading a workshop with ayahuasca at a healing retreat center. The same one that my dad writes about in the book, actually. And I was doing my own thing. Like I, I was sort of a compliment to it. I didn't have a word for it. One of the participants looked at me and said, like, you know, Daniel, you're not a therapist. And I was like, thanks, I think. I'm, I know I'm not, I'm not trying to be one. So you're not like your father. You don't have his patience, his, his compassion, his gentleness, all of this. I said, I know. <laughs> But what do I do? He said, you're a mental chiropractor. I said, yes, I am. That's great. And I love those kinds of conversations. And I love conversations where I have the license. In fact, it's requested of me that I be really blunt and really audacious in how I speak to people. You know, and with my clients, when I'm doing this mental chiropractic, what they're looking for is to have their minds adjusted. They come in sick to death of being stuck in a thing. There's a part of us that loves being stuck. We're just fine with it. We could totally stay stuck forever. It's gotten us this far. It's served us. It keeps us safe. It keeps us from having to be responsible. Other people are to blame or we're to blame, but we kind of soak in our self-pity or whatever. There's a part of us that doesn't want to give up the ghost. As my phone starts to die, I have a couple of questions left in me for you. This parent says, my adult child is an alcoholic. We don't know what to do. Obviously, you can't save someone, but supporting this adult child the best way possible as a parent and still not be able to get to an outcome that even puts the child on a path towards healing is a very frightening place for a parent to be, especially as they near the end of their life. What's your advice? My dad puts it very, very well, I think, when he's talking about addiction, that when you're dealing with someone in your life who's addicted and won't give it up, you have two options that are sane, and you have one insane option, which isn't really an option. The options are accept that this is where they're at and keep them in your life. But that means you let go of all outcomes. It's not about outcomes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, an adult child who's making their own choices, so, so to speak, and is certainly you're not responsible for them, you can't save them. You can't. So either you accept, so there, you accept that and say, okay, I'm going to keep you in my life. I'm going to support you in this way and that. I know that it may go very badly and I'm just ready for whatever. I'm here, whatever. Another option is you say, I can't have you in my life. It's too painful for me. I can't face 
my guilt. I can't face the pain of seeing you hurt yourself. I don't have space for this. I can't do it. I love you. Goodbye. That's another option. The third option, which is crazy and crazy making, is I'm going to keep you around and try to strategize for some outcome. I'm going to try and help you heal or something like that when you don't want to. You can't heal somebody else. That's not what healing is. You're ripping them off if you try. They have to come to their own bottom. And at least that's what the 12-step people say. You have to hit, hit bottom, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if that's true, then you trying to protect them from the consequences of their actions is not actually very kind, is it? You're protecting yourself from grief you don't want to feel, understandably. But what are you creating in the long term? So you have to ask yourself, what's the really loving thing to do? What's my intention? It's always about what's my true intention here? And it can't be an intention that is linked to an outcome for them. That's the best point to highlight that part. Yeah, the word outcome is the giveaway. So probably the best thing you can do for yourself is go to Al-Anon or, or do some other kind of healing work for yourself, get support from other people who have been there, and don't expect your child to save you from your grief or your guilt. That's yours. A couple final points here. I was in theater too, that was um, part of my whole degree that I did. And it was all of the people who didn't feel as though they fit in <laughs> anywhere else. That's the, is that the, tr is, is that the trauma room, the theater room? Well, it's certainly a room where ideally people are willing to, um, to have it out. I mean, I'm taking a, an acting class right now, actually. I've been a theater writer for 15 years and I let go of acting, but I love acting mm -hmm. and I miss it. So I started taking a, a, a class, a Meisner technique class here in New York. With a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant instructor called Matthew Corzine, who, uh, if he's watching, hi Matt. And uh, he's like a therapist, life coach, mental, he's a, really a mental chiropractor. He's a spiritual chiropractor for people. Because you get up on stage and the, the game is to be yourself to be truthful under imaginary circumstances. And you see all of people's little games and their limitations and their go-tos. And I get up there and I think I'm gonna do a great job and I can just feel it's falling flat, it's inauthentic. Mm -hmm. You know, theater is not about concealing yourself, it's about being who you are yes. and make, making believe that imaginary circumstances are real. And that's who we really respond to, people who can let down their guard, even people who can put on funny voices and do whatever, they're bringing some kind of humanity to it. So yeah, I'm, I see a lot of courage in, that, in those rooms. I see people who are really willing to expose themselves, deal with themselves, deal with their shit, get off it, you know, move through it. Um, now, I'm sure acting in Hollywood is very different. You know, like that's a different game. Acting on social media. <laughs> well, 100%, we're all actors, aren't we? We're all, we're all schmackers. Tomorrow I'm doing a podcast, I'm releasing a podcast on how we've normalized disordered eating. Not eating disorders, but disordered eating. Yeah. And I think that so many people feel alone in this. And it's interesting because over the course of the past 10 years, as I've been, doing, been hosting radio show, the most people I've heard from when it comes to this are men. 
Mm. And they've talked to me about their emotional eating. And people are always surprised when I talk about all of these men who have come forward to share their emotional eating stories. When it comes to the ways that we self-regulate, self-medicate, all of these sorts of things. I myself am currently seeing a nutritional counselor, a good friend of mine. I have a session with them tomorrow, which is the first time in my life that I'm taking on my relationship to my eating. Hmm. Not because it's like way out of control, but because I don't relate to it. I haven't been relating to it consciously. Yeah. And it's a source of stress. It's just a source of stress mm. and guilt and confusion and then regret and all that. And I don't want to feel that way. And since I've started this, I don't know if I've lost any weight, but I feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. like I made a meal just before this Instagram live. And in the past, I would have been like, no, I can push through. I can push through. But that would mean... I'm eating at 9, 9.15 p.m., which is going to interfere with my sleep. And I know how important my sleep is right now. And I know I didn't sleep well last night. So it's like finding a way to make aligned choices around that. I mean, if someone's dealing with disordered eating, clearly it's filling some kind of pain-killing role, mm -hmm. some kind of discomfort with the self. You know, let's go read in the realm of hungry ghosts or, or, or there's lots of resources out there about addiction. But I certainly know that that well and you don't have to have an eating disorder. I love that you're talking about disorder eating because you do not have to have a quote unquote eating disorder just like you don't have to be a narcissist to have narcissistic tendencies. Again, what is our does our culture teach us to have a balanced, healthy, sustainable relationship with food? There's no balance in our culture. <laughs> you're never taught balance. Well, why would there be? There's no money in balance unless you're selling balance as a lifestyle brand. It's so funny. I'm a person of extremes and people will commend me on it. Oh, you can go for a run for an hour. Oh, you can do, you know, you stay up this many hours and work. You know what? These are not commendable things to me. Extremes are quite easy. Ask me to do something in moderation and good luck. That's not going to be able to happen. Extremes, you just let the momentum fly. Moderation, that requires control. I, I have a lyric for a song from a musical of mine, which the villain is singing to a couple of children. That's a Hansel and Gretel sequel. So it's the witch singing to them, who's trying to goad them into eating some gingerbread. And if they eat the gingerbread, then they'll be susceptible to a time warp and you'll get, they'll get transported back to the medieval forest of Germany. And this character says, try everything in moderation. Sometimes no, other times yes. Yes, everything in moderation. And that of course includes excess. <laughs> <laughs> on that I which actually like, isn't a bad way to live i think it's fine to go to excess sometimes. i think that's pretty much how my life has led i've gotten better at it through the years last question for you sir it's going to be the same question that i asked your father at the end so you know again we talk so much about our successes we don't talk about our failures but Mountains do not rise without earthquakes. So what was that big earthquake that led to something? Wow, what was your biggest failure? Yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of earthquakes in terms of catastrophes in my life, getting married and divorced and the whole cataclysm of that relationship. Last year, I went to jail in Mexico for three and a half weeks for overstaying my tourist visa. And I got COVID in there and that was a catastrophe. And it wasn't really my fault, but it was also totally not not my fault. I did overstay the visa. It was a terrible thing to happen, but it woke me up to a lot of things. So catastrophes like that tend to wake me up. But if you're talking about my failures, things I actually regret, that's a slightly different question. I would say without a doubt, it, it's in my relationship with women. 
Mm. And actually, this is what I want to take on next, because as a kid, I saw myself as a sad sack, a nebbish, the kind of guy that girls just wanted to be friends with. Mm -hmm. And then when I sort of cracked that code in adulthood, I sort of turned the gears on and I went, I got very excitable. I've had my share of connections, relationships, moments, whatever. And there's a lot of people that I regret the way I left them feeling. And moreover, I've had a series of relationships that have lasted, say, a few months that have all gone very similarly, where it starts out amazing. And I'm, I think, giving off the vibe that I've, I've arrived and it's awesome and I'm with you and I'm excited about you and the words I love you come out easily. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm -hmm. I had one woman call me an emotional terrorist. That's not how I see myself. Wow. She, no, she was upset and she was using colorful language. I'm not gonna take it too literally, but all the people can't be all wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not an advertisement for don't date me, but it is for me to say, like, it's just not something I'm competent at, building sustainable long-term relationships. The other kinds of relationships I've had are the ones where I fall head over heels for someone who is absolutely 100% not available. And she makes it clear from the very beginning, either by saying so or by showing me, and everyone sees it but me, and I am just a hopeless puppy dog. So for basically what that says to me is my template for love and romance is drama, 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 drama. Either I'm the victim or I'm the villain. Either I'm the hungry orphan or I'm the, the dark brooding stranger who can't give you what you really want and you deserve better anyway. That's a failure in my, in my book. And I'm not afraid to call it a failure. It's not a moral failure but it's a failure of, it, something has failed to happen in my life, which includes having kids, being married long-term, knowing what it is to be with someone and grow with someone over a long period of time. I've, some part of me wants that and it hasn't really happened and I'm 47. And so I only get one life and it'll either happen or it won't. It'll either happen or it'll fail to happen. And either way, it doesn't change my value as a human being and my life will be interesting and rich and rewarding in all kinds of ways. But I do feel somewhere in my soul that I'm here on this planet to crack that code and to experience something that I, and the ironic thing is, I talk about my parents' ups and downs and all that. Underneath all of that is a deep connection between them that's just unkillable, unshakable. Two weeks from now, it's gonna be their 53rd wedding anniversary. Now my mom will tell you she wishes she'd left him when we were kids, but she always thinks that they would have gotten back together because they're soulmates and they're destined to be together. I don't want their relationship, but there's something about finding that lasting partner who it's just worth it to stick through thick and thin that I'd like to think is in the cards for me, but it's part of my destiny that I have to go on a bit of a treasure hunt for it and experience the failure of, for that to happen for a long time, it turns out, before I can have it. So yeah, to the extent that I've left women feeling diminished or disrespected or used or played or objectified, that's a failure because that's not really actually how I see people or women, you know, mm -hmm. uh, specifically. Um, to the extent that I've failed to find someone who really honors and respects me when I give them everything or someone who's fully available when I, when I am, that's a failure. And I think, yeah, you can't really get clearer about where you want to succeed if you don't take stock and say, okay, that hasn't happened yet. Didn't, haven't nailed that one. I'm good at a lot of things. It's okay to admit I'm not so good. <laughs> I haven't been so good at that one. That's how you get better.
that you just articulated what a lot of people might not be personally in touch with or just don't want to share. And thank you for sharing that because I'm sure it helps. Also, I see potential for a really good musical in that. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's a musical I've been avoiding writing for a long time. I have the opening song and I, it's basically autobiographical and it's called Adam Claims His Baggage. And it's set at an existential baggage claim where in order to get on this plane, which is going to take you to the next part of your life, you actually have to claim your baggage first. And your baggage, literally, the carousel brings around all these bags full of the, the stuff you haven't completed, the stuff that you're just, that, that is kind of stuck and that you have to face and look at and own and be like, yep, that happened. I did that or that happened and it affected me this way. Is that a one man play or are you looking for something? No, I, I think it has, to have, it has to have other characters. Well, it has to have other characters because it has to have a baggage claim consultant. So you have this like baggage claim consultant who's there to like guide you through the process. And they're kind of like a mental chiropractor, basically. Like they're, they're compassionate, but they're not gonna put up with your bullshit either. They're like, either you're gonna do this or you're not, time's ticking, the plane is leaving. And then you have all the other passengers who have already gone through it because you need people who are gonna stand up and play the different roles from this person's past. And maybe he gets to sit back like in a psychodrama or you know, drama therapy and watch other people play him. I'm gonna audition for that compassionate role, but it's also like, time's ticking. I can see you in that role, absolutely. Thank you very much. And we'll invite Cindy Lauper and it will all go full. And your dad, and we'll give him joy. I think the other thing, my dad gets joy from his kids. He does, damn it. <laughs> Whether he wants to admit it or not. And it's a shame when he doesn't. As far as Cindy Lauper goes, you know, she's a Tony winning musical theater writer. She wrote the musical Kinky Boots. I know a lot about Cindy Lauper because I have dressed up like her like every year of my existence. I was going to say for Halloween, but also pretty much in real life. <laughs> Before my phone dies, The Myth of Normal, which is like, it's an absolute important read. This should be in schools. You know how your dad talks about they don't teach trauma in medical school? Teach this in school. They, inf they inflict trauma in medical school. <laughs> they inflict trauma in medical school. Yes, very good. You yeah, well, thank you for the kind words. I'm proud of the book and I'm proud of my dad. I, I think this is in a big way his accomplishment and I'm proud of myself that I helped him accomplish it. <laughs> That's say you're proud of yourself. We're not allowed to say that. It feels like we're not allowed to say those things in society anymore. You can't be proud of yourself because then that N word rears its face, but it has nothing to do one with the other. Be proud of what you've done. That's fantastic. All of these things, there's nothing wrong with any of it. Even a little narcissism. Yeah, be, focus on yourself for a second, but just be on top of it. <laughs> like, be responsible for it. Well, Thank you so much for those very wise words. And thank you so much for agreeing to cast me in that play about baggage. I feel like it is a certainty. So I, I, we, it's, it's on tape, it's on film, it's an agreement. We'll have, your, have your people call my people. My people is Fozzie Bear. He's on the sofa right now. He's my favorite. <laughs> well, waka waka. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Daniel Matz. Are you going to be, will you be posting the archive of this video so people can see it later? Archive of this video will be posted so you can subscribe on DaliaKurtz.com to the Live and Help Live podcast. Uh, if anyone wants to contact me about mental chiropractic, it's walkwithdaniel.com. Walkwithdaniel.com, DaliaKurtz.com. Thank you, everybody, for sticking around. This was really good. It was my first Instagram live. <laughs>
did great. You're a natural. <laughs> Thank you. That was lots of fun, Dahlia. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, Daniel. Bye. So there it is. Stop spinning your wheels. Just as I'm about to tell you to get on with your day, here I am asking you to spin on out of here. But, 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 before you go, see, you don't need a superpower. You don't need to do something extraordinary. You can just wake up in the morning and you are worthy enough. And I want to thank you for dropping by the Neighboralia, for your kind messages, for your comments, for sharing these episodes. And as your friend, may I ask you to please leave a review wherever you listen to this? It just helps people find the podcast more easily. And I just want to help people live and help live. And since you're here, I'm pretty sure you'd like to do that too. Oh, and you can subscribe to this podcast at DahliaKurtz.com. And why not tell your friends to do the same? The more we can grow this community of connection, the more we can help people get out there, get unstuck. And remember, getting used to something shouldn't be the reason you don't do something good. If you're not happy, instead of moving away from everything, move towards something. Yeah, now go, move, and maybe I will get Cindy Lauper here as a gift for you because of that. Okay, okay, yeah, maybe it would be a gift for me too, but it would be a gift. Now go, get unstuck, and live, and help live. Oh, oh, nothing rhymes without ya. Nothing rhymes without ya. Nothing rhymes with Dahlia. Neighboralia. <laughs>